You can actually turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. We're in a sermon series where we're looking at Revelation. And what does it mean that God has called us into a kingdom colored by His resurrection? The resurrection of us, that ultimately that we would have a resurrected bodies, and then, as I talked about last week, that there would be a resurrected earth, a resurrected city. That heaven isn't just a pie in the sky, but that God will renew all of the earth and all of creation. And we are in part three of this message series. Part one was about how we live, how all the civilizations and cultures of the world are a Babylonian, as the Bible calls it, Babylon. It is a prostituted culture. It is a civilization that seeks to use its goods for itself. And not ultimately as it was intended that we would give ourselves to our maker and our lover, our king, as the Bible calls him, our, hus- our husband, that we are to be a bride to a husband. Last week we talked about how heaven is ultimately a, an ult- a renewal A completion of salvation would be a renewal of creation and that the creation would be as a resurrection. So this is why I'm I'm entitled this series Resurrection Kingdom. It has tremendous implications for how we live life. I'm not just for where we're going going in our ultimate destiny, but how we live our life here and today. Now, three weeks ago at Easter, I gave you a sermon um, that that was about the value of persons, that I called it, that God, for God, there's no such thing as a small person. And in that message, I talked about um, how Jesus revealed himself in the resurrection first to a very no-account person, Mary Magdalene. And I also talked in that sermon about, um, even about a girl, about a girl that is loved by one of our missionaries, and she's in Thailand, and she has AIDS, and even in her own family, because she is dying of AIDS, her own family kind of pushes her aside, right? And how, because of the resurrection, all this has changed. In many ways, this message is a kind of is a kind of continuation of that theme. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to talk about the implications that what does it mean to be saved is that your future is a resurrection, but your resurrection is a promise. And in absolute security, it's actually who you are in the resurrected eternity is the seat and core of your identity. And this has tremendous implications. And today, I'm really, I really talk about how people, people are God's eternal treasure. And there are tremendous implications about how we live today, has not, that we trample upon this principle. And that we do not have this truth living in our life, and it doesn't, it doesn't play out in our life. In fact, we... We do exactly the opposite. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let me, as that's my intro, let's go to the, the, the text, Revelation chapter 19. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, and then we'll jump ahead to chapter 21. Now, I hope that uh, if you've been in our church, you know that I really care about Revelation chapter 21, all right? especially those, those early verses. They are tremendously important. I mean, it's, can't even overemphasize how important those verses are. And um, so, you know, as you come here, we're going we're gonna to be looking at that text multiple times. And I hope that it never gets old to you that it begins to shed 
tremendous light upon our life and our culture and our city and how important it is, okay? So Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, this is the word of God. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. This is John saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, all the multitudes cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Here's the parts I particularly want you to pay attention to. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of, of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the word, true words of God. Let me ask you to turn the page to go to chapter 21. Go to chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amazing. They are trustworthy and true. That one day there will be no more tears and pain and there will be such a city. Let's pray for today's message. Can it be true, God? Can it be true? It almost seems like a fairy tale too good to be true. That here, here is the way the Bible culminates. Here is the final end of the book. And you just mix metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor. Marriage and city and love, Lord, and glory and hallelujah. For there's a furious and flurry of celebration 
of what you are doing and what you are going to complete, Lord. But as we talk today, it's particularly to see that you, you will marry a people. You will treasure a people. And you will shine and uh, pour upon us your pleasure, your love. You'll cherish us. We think of what this means in this day and age and how we ought to live in light of this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this passage, you know, the, the book of Revelation, you're thinking, you know, I'm not going to go through the whole book. It would just be too hard. <laughs> I mean, it is, many, many scholars consider, many people consider, this the most mysterious and perhaps the most difficult book in the Bible to interpret. But actually, there are certain keys, and if you can understand these keys, it actually, especially toward the end, it is not that difficult to understand. And the Bible has this flurry of activity, of different images. But today, I just want to keep it simple. And, it's, and the point is so obvious, it's, it's easy to overlook. And that's why I want, to, I, want to, I want to make sure that we get this. That the first implication that we get in, in the kingdom of God, in the resurrection kingdom, is that God, that there'll be a huge party. And the way God presents it, if you look at Revelation 21, is it is His people. It is His people that He will dwell in. It is His people that is His bride. It is His people that He calls the New Jerusalem. We're not talking about a church which is an institution. We're not even talking about a city which is buildings. We're talking about the city which is a people which is His bride. And all those have meanings. There's a people, and to call us His bride is to say, you are my treasure. You I will look upon. You I will just absolutely shower and ravish for all eternity. You are the most valuable thing to me. And think about this. God is utterly sufficient in all of eternity. He does not need a creation. And then even out of this creation, he could, just be, he could just make us like a souvenir that he sticks on the shelf. This is a nice little prize that I like to have. But the prize that he made was persons. He made a people. And the deepest prize that he would make is so that he would cherish us. And he would dare to call this a wedding. Now think about this. You know, your wife is not like your car, <laughs> Your wife is not like a house. Your wife is not a bank account. Your wife is not an achievement or a degree. Okay? We know, even if you don't always necessarily love your wife the way you ought to, that we know that you know, we watch these movies and we like these romance movies because one at some point, there will be a point where you know, boy meets girl and then they get married and that he will treasure her. She will be his great prize. And this is the way the Bible dares to talk about God's people, right? Now, that's the explication of the text. That's the principle. And to do this, to get into this, I want to talk about how we, in this society, we're very Babylonian. That the, the norm of the world and the norm of, of, of history is not to be as Jerusalem, not to be as the gospel presents us here, is that we would be, as the Bible says, that we would be as prostitutes. We do not, use, that we do not go toward our ends, that we, that we just use things. And particularly today, what I'd like to present is that you use people. Right? The question I'd like to present to you today is, when you look at people, do you see them as ends? 
Do you see them as the final, like this is the ends of, like this is the ends of what I give myself to? See, your wife can never be just someone that you use. She has to be an ends. You give herself to you. She's like a final. She's a final blessing. She's someone you embrace, right? Are people such so valuable that they are an ends and not a means? And this is a principle that our culture, that what, what some people have called Western civilization, has understood quite well. And one of the reasons why we call it Western civilization is because it's in one part of the hemisphere and other cultures have not understood some of the, the cultural values and moral points that Western civilization has achieved. And so I'll just give you an example. Human rights, right? This thing called human rights, that every single person born has a certain set of rights endowed by God and that every single person has a certain value that no government, no person can just squash out. We can't just use people. And so throughout history, right, throughout history, we call it Western. It's, it's interesting that we call it Western civilization, but actually it shouldn't really be called Western civilization. It should, it should be called Christianized civilization or biblical civilization. And so this notion of human rights, pe- people think it's some just kind of a universal thing, but it hasn't been universal. <laughs> Throughout history, it absolutely has not been universal. If you, look, if you go to Egypt and you look at those tremendous great pyramids, you know how many people had to die to make those things happen? Human beings were means. They were a part of the cog of the machine. These guys have to die in this great thing in order to make this great piece of our glory for us. The ends is the pyramids and our glory. People are nothing. People are just are part, part of the cogs and people would die. In the Mayan culture, which is in South America, you know, the glory was to have this God come and bless our society and make us rich and powerful. In order for that to happen, you know what they would do? They would have human sacrifice. They would take people and they would sacrifice them to this God People becoming a means toward the glory of the society. Right? You know, thinking, but pastor, we don't do that kind of stuff today. Really? <laughs> we don't use people today? And in the, in the course of this sermon, what I'd like to do is I'd like to just talk about the ways in which we're Babylonian. You know, you know we are living in what some people call the post-Western, post-Western culture, or some people call it the post-Christian culture, right? Actually, the society that are non-Western are becoming more Christian, and the society that's Western is becoming de-Christian. And I hope that the, the non-West, that the societies that are becoming more Christian outside of the West will begin to take this principle and start to weave it into their culture and to begin to cherish people the way God cherishes them. That is what made the West so incredible and so wonderful, such as the rest of the world would begin to be convinced by the West, so to speak, but it's, it's so tragically ironic that the West, in becoming de-Christianized, right, is starting, we're starting to cave in on ourselves, and I, I call that the suicide culture, right? And, and as I'm talking, I call that the suicide culture. But today I just want to talk about how, because we are this Babylonian society that has lost this principle, you know, that we need to get this back, and it can only come back through Jesus, right? Now, let me give you some examples about how we do this. And let me, the first one, the first way that I want to press you to think about this is friends. Right? Who are your friends? Or what are friends? Friends 
are supposed to be a set of people that God gave you. You think you're like friends. You're like, I didn't know God had anything to do with friends. Of course God has something to do with friends. Because God made all people to be a blessing and to be cherished. And that when you have a friend in your life, it's, it's not a person that is just comes and goes and is to be meant to be there at your convenience and at your whim, but it's a person that's supposed to be there to bless you and that you are supposed to embrace. But in our society, people that we call friends typically are, they are conveniently there. They like the things you like. They're either fun or fun to, funny to be with. And in other words, they are there because they're useful to you and typically because you're kind of bored or you're lonely. And they're around. And therefore, the people that are around and help quench a little bit of loneliness or boredom, we call our friends. That's what our society calls friends, right? That's not a friend. <laughs> Those are the people you're using. That's, what we call, that's, what, that's what's going on in our society. I watch... You know, as I go around, you know, when I watch today, as, a, as I look at the, what people call friends today, it's this. A friend is an acquaintance that you use to fill some boredom or loneliness and offer a little fun. I noticed this when I was in college. I noticed that, um, that most of the people that I knew did not have what I would consider real friendships. They had people that they had fun with people that they ate meals with or they went to parties with or they got drunk with. Right? But they weren't deeply interested in the other person and they wouldn't open themselves up to the other person to let that person come into their life and treasure them, allow their junk and stuff to come out so they wouldn't be a friend or know how to treasure their friends, but they really had just acquaintances that they had friends with. And now that I'm a little older and I'm not in college anymore, I go to, you know, I just observe people around me. And especially young people, I notice, fall into this pattern. And when I say young, I'm talking like 30s and 20s and maybe even younger. But have you ever noticed this? You know, um, as a pastor, I, I end up going out to eat quite a bit. I mean, I actually it's kind of old. I go out to eat a lot at, for lunches. And so I get to various different kinds of restaurants. And, and I'm a people watcher. And I look at the people around me, and of course, most of the people who are out to eat are out to eat with their coworkers, and occasionally you get to overhear their conversations at the next table. You ever do this, right? You know, I'm not like trying to be all nosy and listen in, but occasionally something will perk my ear, and I'll just listen in for just a little brief time to see what they're talking about. And you know what they mostly talk about? Not much, right? What are they talking about? They're talking about some clever little movie or something. In other words, they're filling the time because you don't want to eat by yourself because then you would be lonely. You would feel a little sad for yourself. You know, and there's people feel a little sorry for you. So we get together and then some of them say they call them, they call each other their friends. But they don't seem like friends to me, right? At this most basic level, the people in your life, are they people that you treasure? And that if it would be inconvenient and you'd have to go out of the way and if it would cost you, would you go? Would it cost you? Would you do value them enough that you would go be there for them? Or is there someone in your life that if it was inconvenient for them, would they be there for you? Or do or most of the people in your life, they're just there, they're convenient for you, you use them, right? Hmm. Is this starting to hit home a little bit now? I'll give you another example. The way our society thinks about sex, and I'm not here to like hammer you about, I'm, or make you feel guilty particularly about just, just our society, the way we think about it, right? 
The Bible's understanding of sex, and here, you know, toward the, the, the book, toward the end of Revelation, there's a lot of talk about sexual morality, and there's a talk about a prostitute, and there's a talk about the, the bride. So there's actually, I don't know if you understand this, there's actually a theology and vision of sex toward the back of the book, toward the back of the Bible. And that, so that sex is something so important that God actually culminates a teaching about the Bible with that teaching. But let me just give you a little picture of what sex is supposed to be like. Right? is that a husband marries a wife. There's one person, he's supposed to say, I will cherish you. I will give myself to you, my body to you. And what sex is supposed to be is a form of physical, sacrificial, self-giving love. So the husband is supposed to say, how can I touch you in a way that is special to you? that you will please you and make you happy and you know that I know you and you know that I want to just do this for you. And then, of course, the wife's supposed to say, I'm supposed to give myself toward you in this kind of way. And it's a profoundly intimate form of saying, I cherish a person. But that's not how our society treats it at all. Our society treats it as a means toward fun, as a means toward quenching loneliness. And then people, women, men... You know, again, going back to college, what was a, a party? I stopped going to these big parties, these, because I noticed that most of the parties that were in college were, had loud music <laughs> and a lot of alcohol so that we can get drunk. And then it had to have girls, <laughs> right? In other words, it had to have members of the opposite sex because you don't want to go to a party and they're just all a bunch of guys. Like, there's like, oh, that'd be the worst party. Or girls go to a party and it's just a bunch of girls. No one wants to go to the party. Because the point of the party was the loud music was supposed to be to produce fun. And then you forget your loneliness and the problems of your life. The alcohol was to make you less inhibited. And hopefully... Out of the party, you could get laid, right? You could get sex. So sex was a means for something else. Instead of it being so that a person could be utterly cherished and that person could be valued as the way the Bible puts it in the confines of marriage, instead it's just used. That's how our society handles it. Right? Let me give you another example. How do you approach your work? What is work for you? And I'm going to talk more about this, you know, because this is such an important topic and this is just permeates our society that we are such uh, just prostitutes and mercenaries about the way we handle our work. And that's a huge part of what makes us a Babylonian. So I'll just, just touch on this here. How do you look at your work? What is work to you? It's just something I got to do to make money. Or it's just something I got to do to have an identity and be somebody. Is that primarily what work is for you? Work is something that you get something out of and it's useful to you, right? But how about work is something you do so that people can be flourish. People can be served. People will be the ultimate ends. Do you ever think of the work that you do that people are the ends of the work that you do? You ever think that software, maybe you write software, or you market software, is, because that's what, you know, this, this is Silicon Valley, right? That people are in mind to bless people and people will be flourished. Do you ever think about that? Right? Even the person maybe who just makes ha a hamburger for you when you go to McDonald's, have they thought that they did this for the sake of persons? I mean, do you ever think about that? 
Um, one last way in which we're Babylonians, and I think this is, this is the one that really stands out for me, is the way we think about those who are poor, those who are weak, those who are forgotten in our society. And let me, let me place it to you this way. Right? In our society, the only people who get paid attention to you are the people who are pretty or who are smart or who are talented who have some skill that is useful. Useful. That's what's important in our society. Useful. Useful for me. And we don't call it, call it that way. But in other words, if a person isn't very smart, or isn't very pretty, or isn't very talkative, or isn't outgoing, can engage you in a nice conversation, or has a great talent, then we don't really know what to do with them. And you know what? We just kind of uh, shut them aside. And so this, I'm not just talking about the poor, as you know, you normally think about the poor. I'm just talking about all the people in one way or another that are made to feel like you are overlooked. And of course, in one way or another, we feel, you know what this like, like to feel this way, right? Just this past week, we had America's most popular sport. We had a little event called the NFL Draft. It's actually on primetime TV now, right? They actually put this on TV. You know what the draft is? It's actually a kind of a boring event where teams select players out of college to say, you'll be on our team and these guys are going to make millions of dollars. There's no game. There's no passing. There's no touchdowns. There's no score. Just one afternoon, a team goes, we're going to pick this guy. And then 15 minutes later, we're going to pick this guy. That's the, the whole TV program is just that, right? Where big dudes are coming out, you know, 300-pound guy. And then it's like, congratulations, you've been picked by this guy. It's really all it is. It's, it's kind of imagine if you, when you were on, um, when you were a, a kid, and then they would pick who's going to be on what team versus another. You know, you ever, you ever experienced that? Imagine if they put that on TV. <laughs> Just the selection, the captain on one side, the captain on the other side. Hey, I, I take him, and then I take him. They put that on TV. But you know what the draft all is? Is this. Hey, you. You're a big 300-pound guy with nimble feet. You get to protect our quarterback. We're going to shower millions of dollars upon you, and you get to be on our team. Hey, you, you're super fast, and you catch touchdowns with your hand. So we want you to be on our team. That's on TV. But you know what happens? If you're not fast enough, or if one of those guys gets injured, that's it. It's just out. And all those guys who played football in college who weren't quite, their skills weren't quite good enough, they don't get chosen and they don't end up on TV and they just become nothing. Right? And this, that little picture of the draft, that is the way our whole culture operates. Our culture operates, and, you, and, and let, me, let me just put this to you. You operate like that too. You go around to people in your life and you're like, I'm busy. What do you have? Do you have a skill? Do, are you funny? Are you pretty? Are you popular? Are you cool? Are you, do you quench my loneliness? Are you interesting to be around? Do you offer something into my life? If not, I don't really know what to do with you. I don't have any use for you. So you kind of set those people aside. Huh? And all, there's so many people in our society, that's the case. Because our society is geared toward you having the American dream. So the only people that can become truly so-called, have their dream, are the people who have talent and skill and powers in our society. So if you don't have talent and skills and powers in our society, you can't participate in the American dream. 
And so all those people who aren't helping you toward your dream, guess what? They're not very useful for you. They get set aside and they become kind of forgotten and overlooked. That's how we operate in our society. And of course, you know what, the, you know what it feels like when people do that to you. You know, they start talking to you and after a little while, you can tell they're not interested in you so then they just move on to somebody else. Or, you know, you walk into a room and you know, hey, I'm interested in finding a pretty girl. All the girls are not pretty enough. (laughs) You know, you just don't even look at them, right? Of course, when you walk into the room, you know the girls want to find a a handsome guy and you're like, oh, I hope they can find me. And then when the girl talks to you and then she stops stops finding interest in you, you know you just became one of those people. Babylonian culture. That's how we are. What is it like when Jesus reigns? When Jesus is king and his love and cherishing of the bride is placed in the culture, what what happens? Let me just give you some, some pictures of this, right? Number one. You know, one of the big ways that's, that, uh, that's, that I think Christians and the, the, the Jerusalem culture contrasts to the Babylonian culture is adoption, right? Adoption, and you know the way that the, the Babylonian culture does it? The Babylonian culture does abortion. Who are unwanted, forgotten, and overlooked children? Unwanted, overlooked children... To Jesus, get adopted. Unwanted, overlooked children in our culture, they get aborted. In our society, abortion is normal and legalized. Right? It used to be the children would get more, far more adopted and that would be a lot more treasure and there would be a lot more energy toward that. But I fear that that's, that's, we're losing that in our culture. Right? You know, part of it, by the way, goes hand in hand. If we didn't abort Kids in our culture, there'll be a lot more kids available for adoption in our culture. Do you know that? <laughs> and because we abort kids in our culture, we abort kids in our culture, adoption just doesn't happen as much in our culture just because it's harder. Right? If, there, if we didn't abort them, there'd be a lot more kids up for adoption, and then I bet you adoption would be made easier. And so today, if you want to adopt a child, it's hard. <laughs> it costs a lot of money. The process is hard. And then... So today, you know what, people who really are determined to do this beautiful thing of adoption, we have to go find a kid from another country. And people do that, and I absolutely think the people do that and spend the energy and money to do that. They're incredible. They have swallowed the love of Jesus or the principle. And some are not even Christians. But they're not Christians because they have swallowed the principle that God cherishes people, right? All people, including the forgotten and unwanted people. Adoption versus abortion. And, I'm, and you know, I, I'm very passionate about this issue, of both, of, on the, both on the adoption and on the abortion side. And I'm not trying to you know, make a political statement here now. Like, I don't know how you vote, whatever. I'm not, I'm not even talking about politics here. Forget politics. The reason we have abortion in our society and the reason abortion isn't going to be stopped in our society, not even about the people who are having abortion. You're like, Pastor, I, I'm, I'm, I've not had an abortion, Right? By the way, that's not always true. There are people in the church who are Christians and some of the women have had abortions. And let me tell you, it's so important that you know that Jesus has forgiven you. Okay, there's grace in the church, right? 
But many times in the church, you're thinking, oh, nobody's had an abortion, right? But maybe you haven't had an abortion. You're thinking, why are you talking about this, Pastor? It doesn't apply to me. Look, it does. It applies to all of us. We live in a culture that has accepted abortion and normalized abortion. Probably last year, we killed more than a million kids. And it's just normal as part of it. You know what enables that to happen is this. There's a little thought process like this. We're all going to have our life dream. And... If my daughter or my friend or if I had an accidental pregnancy, ladies, I'm not talking me, the guy. I'm, talking, I'm just talking me, the proverbial woman here, okay? <laughs> right? If I ever had a pregnancy that was unintended, it could like mess up my life. It would mess up my plans. It would mess up my dreams, right? So, I'm sorry. You know, we can't settle that on people. Therefore, abortion should be okay because that would just be too disruptive, right? It's that little thought process that abortion should be okay because it conflicts with our Babylonian dream life. That thing. As long as that little, as that, that thought of the dream, then children will be inconvenient. Because then, you know what? Let me just tell you. Children, they're all inconvenient. <laughs> they're all inconvenient. Because they're all messy and they spill stuff and they pee on the floor and they ask you dumb questions. And, or sometimes not dumb questions. You think they're a dumb question, but it's actually a good question. Right? So, that's what, as long as we have this in our society, that it's my dream and people are useful for me, you know what? Abortion is going to go on. Because kids will always be inconvenient, especially babies. And let me just say this little, one more thing before I move on from this topic. If you are a couple today and you've got one or two kids or three, and if, you know, let me just ask you to consider I know not everybody can do this, but maybe the Lord will call you to do this. Would you consider adopting a child, right? If you can't do the full-on adoption, maybe you could just do foster care for a little while. Somebody, so that a person that God will want to cherish, eternal value, outlast nations, maybe you can say, because God cherishes you, I'll cherish you, right? Let me just ask you to consider that. And maybe if, if you're single today or you're a couple, you're a young couple, you don't have kids yet, right? Maybe, and then somebody ever asks you the question, how many kids are you going to have? And you're like, oh, I don't know, one or two. Maybe you can just consider, we'll have two and adopt one. Or we'll have just two. We'll have one of our own, and then we'll have one that God gives us, not from our bodies, but from this other means. And, and you'll have two because I can't handle three or I can't handle four, okay? All right, so... Let me just ask you, just consider it and pray on it, and maybe the Lord will call you to some of this. Okay? That was my first thing, way. Adoption is the way. When this vision of God's cherishing of people, it comes in, when His people swallow it, one of the things that happens is adoptions start to happen, I think. It will empower adoptions. Huh? Let me tell you... Um, uh, two more pictures. One, we have a ministry in this church. It's just next door. After the service, it'll start at noon, next door. It's, in our church, we call it the Sarangjigi, right? Sarangjigi, I don't even know entirely how to um, translate that because my Korean is terrible, okay? But all I know is that Sarang means love. The Sarangjigi ministry in our church, and we just celebrated a couple weeks ago, is a ministry geared to embrace Children who are developmentally disabled, right? And every, every now and then, let me just invite you 
to just go hang with them. And sometimes I've had opportunity to go sit with the parents who bring their children. They're usually sitting there. They have their own little food. And just let me just sit there and just talk with them. You don't have to do anything. Just go be with them. Go meet them. Say hi. Say hi to the parents. Go look at the kids and just think this for a bit, okay? You all know what it feels like when you are forgotten, overlooked, because you're not useful enough. But here is a whole class of children because they're not smart enough, because they can't get educated enough, because they're not outgoing enough, they can't social enough. In one way or another, they have some limitation. But one day, some of them will be saved, they'll be resurrected, and God will cherish them forever. Well, can you just go be with them? And you know, I'm a son of this church, and I have a kind of love-hate relationship with this church. I mostly love it, but there are times that this church drives me a little crazy, okay? And I know the periods of time in this church's history when I didn't think, you know, ministry was going very well, and when I thought it was a little too man-centered, and too much about religion, and not enough about Jesus. And I came to this church, and I would, sometimes I have, I have cynicism about, like, is, is our church really doing real ministry from God? And three years, when I, three years ago, when you know, the Lord called me to be, you know, come pastor in the church where I grew up in, and I saw that we had this ministry in this church, this Harangjagi ministry, you know what I thought? I was like, oh my goodness, God is alive in our church. God is in our house, right? Because if there are people who will do that, they do that without selflessly, gladly, they pour themselves in that ministry, they can only, you can only do that if Jesus lives and reigns in your heart, right? And Jesus will live and reign in this ultimate resurrected city. And the evidence that Jesus is reigning and living in our church, in this community, is right next door. To me, that's a very profound and powerful piece of evidence that Jesus is alive in our church. Let me tell you one more picture, and then I'll close our message today, right? There's a... Have you ever heard of a, a man named Henry Nguyen or Nguyen? I don't, I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name. N-O-U-W-E-N. All right. So Henry, I'll, I'll say Henry Nguyen. All right. That's, that's how one of my friends pronounced his name. Now, let me tell you a little story about Henry Nguyen. Henry Nguyen, for those of you who may not know him, is famous today because he wrote a series of books, right? But and he would probably consider it utterly ironic, and he would probably care not a whit of, for his fame. Here's how he became famous, which is odd, right? He was a professor at Harvard. So in his field, I don't exactly know what he was a professor of. To become a professor of Harvard in the field of being a professor, and that's like reaching the top, okay? That's, you can't get any higher than that. He was at the top of the field of his chosen profession. So in terms of the American dream, he made it. You know what he did? He quit his job. He quit his professorship at Harvard. And you know what he quit it for? Somewhere in the middle of his life, he sensed the Lord was calling him to be with people like that are in our Sarangjigi, with developmentally disabled children. I mean, back then when he did that, we called them retarded and we've kind of you know, gotten rid of that word. And I think that's a good, good thing, right? Because it's an insulting word. But he went to go be with developmentally dis- uh, disabled children. Not just to go spend one or two hours a week with them in a ministry. He went to go live with them in a community to live with them. And you know what he said, why he did this? And in his books, he talks about this. Why did he go do this? He did this because he said when he was with them, he would 
see Jesus. He would see Jesus and know Christ's love for him. That's why he went to go do it. He didn't go do it for money or for fame. In fact, he left behind his his, uh, big shotness and his money to go be relatively poor in this world, but to be rich to meet Jesus. That's why he did it. And the only way you could do this is if you could meet this Jesus, the Jesus proclaimed in Revelation 19 and 21. Now look. I'm going to give you one challenge, and then I would like to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Right? This is my challenge. In your life, look, I, I know I'm kind of hammering you, and you're probably like, Pastor, you're making me feel really bad about myself. I feel really bad as a person. Right? I'm a selfish person, American dream. I treat all the people around me. Are they useful for me? You told me I treat people like a draft. Right? You know, oh, this person's useful for me, except, you know, I'm not looking for 300 pound, 300 pound offensive linemen. I'm looking for people that are clever or funny or help me in my career or make me feel good about myself, keep me company, right? And like, these are the people whose company I like. Right? Look, let me just ask you maybe today or maybe this week or maybe right now, there's someone or some set of people in your life, either a set of people in your life, or maybe a certain particular person or persons or a couple of people in your life. You know, we can't do this for everybody. We're not God. God can cherish everybody. Right? We can have the principle that God absolutely cherishes everybody right? and that all persons are utterly of value. They're not to be used as means, but they're ends. We can place that principle and faith in our hearts, but we can't practice this, you know, but let me ask you, is there one or two or just a few people that maybe the Lord is asking you, take some energy and priority and just give them time and cherishing? Somebody that you would normally overlook, someone that you would set aside, or they're not, you know, you're just too busy, or they're not as useful for you. Somebody. And take some time. Maybe you don't have to have that answer today or even throughout this week. Take some time and pray. And will the Lord move you in this way? And maybe the Lord could sow in you what he did to Henry Nowen. And you can know God. You can have God in your life. And some of you are like, Pastor, I don't know what it's like to have God in my life. I don't have much God in my life. Well, maybe it's because you're just a Babylonian running this playbook and all your relationships are people that largely you just get something out of. But that you don't know how to meet God because you don't know how to just cherish people. And you know what it's like to be felt, felt this way. Take a person that you don't get something out of, but if a person would love you this way, that you don't give them something, but they were to love you, how much would you just feel so appreciative of a person? You don't give them something, but they give you. Right? Pay attention to you, listen to you, just invest in you. We just do that for somebody. Here's where I'd like to close this message. It's a quote from um, C.S. Lewis. You guys know I love C.S. Lewis. And he's so eminently quotable. Right? This is from his book, Four Loves. And while I've been sitting and meditating on these last couple chapters of Revelation, this passage from Lewis just keeps coming back to me. just keeps coming back to me. Right? And it's Lewis's meditation on marriage, particularly, 
But his meditation on marriage is on how Christ loves his bride. Right? And here's just it's a quick little... He says this. For the church, that is the bride, has not beauty. But what the bridegroom gives her. He does not find her lovely. But because he cherishes her, he makes her lovely. Right? You know, we go in this world and we're always hoping somebody will think I'm handsome enough or cool enough. When we go on our job interviews, you're so concerned. Do I have enough experience? Do I have enough skills? Do I went to the right schools on my resume? All this other kinds of stuff. And when you just walk into the room, you're hoping somebody will find you interesting enough to converse with and talk with and pay attention to, right? But actually, the Bible says, God's people, it's not because we were lovely. You know, Jesus looked at you. It's not because you were cool enough or smart enough. He didn't care about any of that stuff. But he cherished you and thus you start to become lovely because he loved you by grace. Will you just love someone by grace? Not because they're useful to you or anything. And you open your heart to them and help contribute to God making them lovely because you remember first that not because you were lovely, God cherished you So you become bit by bit more lovely and holy and beautiful, the God, the way Christ loves you. Look at Jesus, please, first. And then look around you and see who Jesus directs you to look at the way he looks at you. Let's pray. We're so not like this, Jesus. We're so not like you. So full of selfishness and busyness. So everybody has to, we have to get maximal use out of all our time and everybody has to maximally be useful for our purposes and contribute to our life, Lord. And we are such prostitutes. Using, using, being used. We even allow ourselves to be used because that's just so normal. But Lord, you say you've got an eternity to just hang with us, to cherish us, to enjoy us. And this causes us to be flourish. So Lord, I pray that you would help this word ring in our hearts and let us feel and know that we are your bride. We are your people. And you will dwell with us and cherish us. And people are intended to be cherished this way. And would you do something, Lord, in our church? Would you let adoption go forward in our church? All our brothers and sisters and all our friends who are seeking to adopt, will you please remove all the obstacles, all the bureaucratic snafus? Those who need money, will you please give them money? (laughs) Will Will you please, all the people who are on the fence, will you move them off the fence, Lord? All the people... Who are, are afraid, will you, will you take them away, take their fear away? Lord, will you let this go forward? Would people be cherished before your sight and your kingdom? Let your kingdom come, Lord, in us, in our hearts, in our church, in our city, on earth, as it will one day ultimately be on the earth and in heaven.
In Jesus' name, amen.